The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Men who frequent and live in this area either pay for their pleasure or make their livings on the backs of these women whose faces reflect their painful existence. Many of these women hold their head high but rarely smile afraid to show teeth rotten by chemicals they take to get through each night. Their two thin bodies and fragile bones barely fill the short skirts and the low-cut blouses they wear to attract customers. None of that really matters, though. Despite an unstable economy, business is always good on the darkened corners and trash-filled alleys in the heart of North Baton Rouge. From Dismembered by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am your host, Jill, and this is episode 75, Devil in the Dark, part two of Dismembered by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel. My podcast features the best true crime books out there, updating the author's true crime story and then adding my psychological analysis, plus anything else that comes along. Many of us have no time to read, so I read for you. And if you're serving in the military, I hope you have a great Veterans Day. You are very much appreciated. Now, here comes my shout out for my favorite mystery game, Killer Mystery. If you love true crime, this is the game for you. Fun, creative, it's less expensive than McDonald's. All right, every season contains five episodes, and each one is delivered to your door every month. Over the season, you'll be introduced to the characters. Review the evidence, decipher the clues, which will lead you to follow the mystery. It is perfect for us murder bookies. So get ready to be immersed into a thrilling story. And remember, everyone is a suspect. The link is on my blog. It's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And sometimes we just need a little break from reality. So check it out. All right. So in my previous episode, part one of Dismembered, our setting is in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and we met utterly revolting serial killer Sean Vincent Gillis, who murders and then horrifically mutilates his victims. At the time in Louisiana, there are so many murders of women, many sex workers, that the investigators are stymied. Plus, these homicides span a number of counties called parishes in Louisiana that the various law enforcement agencies do not realize a serial killer is out there. Well, some suspect. So in September 1999, 36-year-old Florida Edwards was found in an abandoned building, strangled to death. Then 33-year-old Shirley Milkey's body was found four weeks later on Florida Boulevard, totally brutalized. In April 2000, the body of 35-year-old Diana Williams and then 36-year-old Tannis Walker's bodies were found. Diana had been beaten to death. Tannis was strangled. 
In May, police discovered the strangled body of Patricia Hawkins, age 39. Then, Veronica Courtney, age 44, was found in June. All of these women had been posed in some fashion, naked, legs spread wide. A little bit about posing. This is a form of staging, of which there are several types. This type of posing puts the victim on display, and it may be used to send a message, whether it's to the police, to the families, to the public in general, whether it's be shocked, she's a whore, she's garbage and trash. It's fairly rare, appearing in only about 1% of cases. This kind of killer wants to humiliate the victims. This is a psychological need. It is a signature. It is not absolutely necessary to commit the crime. This kind of posing is not deliberate staging, which is designed to throw the police off, or even protective staging, which, for example, families might alter the scene to prevent embarrassment or shame. That's protecting the victim. So a task force is established to catch the, quote, prostitute killer, and Deputy Keith Bates was its head. Joining the Baton Rouge PD was the FBI and Louisiana State Police. Since sex workers are dying at an alarming rate, the public, well, they are blissfully unaware because the media coverage has been minimal at best. No one cared about the death of hookers who choose to live a high-risk lifestyle. Now, this is wrong because we don't have or shouldn't have a pecking order on whose murder matters. All victims matter. This is starting to change, but we need to revisit and to remember that all life is precious. Fun fact, it is not Louisiana's Baton Rouge that is the serial killer capital, in spite of the Oxygen series, which I do highly recommend. In 2023, New York is the state with the most serial killers, with a total of 18 born there. California comes in second with 15 serial killers, followed by Texas with eight. You know me and my research. <laughs> so the media does finally engage after the September 2001 murder of Gina Wilson Green, strangled in her home. Lovely, talented, she was a nurse and thus worthy of attention. See how that worked? In June 2001, Christine Moore, a beautiful, bright Louisiana State University student, went out for a run along River Road and vanished. Her bones were found a week later in a ravine. And when recent LSU graduate Charlotte Murray Pace was attacked in her townhouse with 83 stab wounds caused by a screwdriver, both the media and police understood that a different kind of killer was targeting the women of the Baton Rouge area. A month later, in Tiny Bro Bridge, another nurse, Diana Alexander, was attacked at home by, quote, a burly black man forced his way in and attempted to rape and strangle her. Fortunately, Diana's son drove up in time to interrupt the attack, quote, and saved her life with the man escaping out the back door, end quote. A week later, the owner of a popular antique store, Pam Cannamore, was abducted at home and taken to Whiskey Bay, raped, and then slashed to death. Her death hit her mom, Lynn Marino, and the community really hard. DNA found on her body would be matched to the other murders 
tying even earlier murders to this killer, confirming that a serial killer was out there. In 1992, Connie Lynn Warner from small town Zachary was found dead near downtown Baton Rouge, beaten to death. In 1998, Randy Mebruner, who also lived a block from Connie, was killed in a violent, bloody crime scene, and her body was never found. DNA from semen would link these cases to the South Louisiana serial killer who garnered all the limelight and obscured the murders of Sean Gillis, who continued driving Carrie, his girlfriend, back and forth to work, and in between, trolled for victims and scanned news reports, which he kept on a file in his computer. He appreciated the South Louisiana serial killer causing all this commotion. Now, that killer, he attacked where women felt safe, in their homes, living very low-risk lives. These women, beautiful, accomplished, educated, mattered to the community. And women began rolling in self-defense classes, bolting their doors and windows. As more women died, the fear became palatable. In November 2002, Trinisha Danny Collum was attacked at her mother's grave site, which is just, no, no, you don't do that. That's off limits. She was found in Scott, Louisiana, 20 miles away, having been raped, beaten, and killed. DNA tied her to the other cases. And at Christmas Eve, Mary Ann Fowler, a 65-year-old woman, wife to Jerry, the newly imprisoned former commissioner of elections, went missing. So all women were at risk. Age and race were irrelevant. And now the media began reporting just how many women had been murdered over the last decade. And Sean Gellis found all of this wildly amusing. He was being upstaged. He also appreciated that this killer was keeping him safe in the shadows. No one was looking for him. This changed on May 28, 2003, when the Southern Louisiana serial killer, Derek Todd Lee, a black man, was arrested in Atlanta having fled. Everyone exhaled in relief. The serial killer was caught. And Sean Gillis just laughed. So let's obliterate that myth. Serial killers are not all white men. Johnny Mae Williams was a pretty black woman, famous in her neighborhood for her cooking. A stay-at-home mother, she devotedly cared for her children. Money was tight, but her children, Larry Jr., Lauren, and Jenna, lacked for nothing. Larry Sr. and Johnny worked to have a happy family in spite of their divorce. Johnny Mae would fall in love with Tony Lawrence and move her brood to Baton Rouge. The kids found themselves living in an upscale development with an in-ground pool and five snazzy cars. Tony and Johnny Mae were blissfully happy, but Johnny Mae ignored Tony's sketchy friends that were hanging around. Later, Lauren would say that Tony was unfaithful, and her mother turned to drugs to deal with the painful betrayal. Becoming addicted to crack, the fall came fast. Tony was gone, the house was gone, the ideal life gone. And Larry Sr. saw that something was terribly wrong and worried about their children. He soon got custody, and Johnny May wound up going in and out of rehab. 
Now, the kids knew she loved them, and she fought her addiction hard, but she always returned to the dark streets of northern Baton Rouge. When using, Johnny May insulated her children from her reality. When she came out of rehab clean, she would resume cooking her unbelievably delicious meals for her babies. Her kids tried not to worry when their mom disappeared again. And after Lauren joined the military, she paid her mama's bills, never giving up hope that her mother would beat this addiction. Sean Gellis hired Johnny May as a cleaning lady as she needed cash and he wanted the pot she had access to. Over time, they became friends. Off drugs one Thanksgiving, Johnny invited Sean to join them in celebration and it seemed very natural for this white nerdy man, her friend, to attend. October 9th, 2003 was no different. Johnny May hopped into Sean's car. She was painfully thin. Most of her teeth were gone. Her addiction was really bad. And it occurred to Sean that she looked dead. And she should be. As the familiar, twisted excitement began to flood him, it didn't matter that she was his friend. His pause in killing was over. Pulling into a secluded parking lot, he threw Johnny May out of the car, striking her head, shoulder, stomach until she died. Stripping her, he used his knife, stabbing and mutilating, tearing, quote, like that Thanksgiving turkey he had eaten with her all those years before. He felt nothing but pure enjoyment in the moment. He was so curious. He wanted to see the muscles and veins and tissues, end quote. Severed, her hands were placed in Ziploc bags, her clothes boxed up. Her ravaged body was thrown down an embankment, her buttocks posed upward, as Sean took Polaroids so he could enjoy his handiwork later. In the car, he rubbed her hands over his body, climaxing. Well, this turned out to be quite a memorable welcome to the neighborhood. Robert and Patty Reeves had invited their new pastor, Mike Robertson, over for lunch. And wouldn't you know it, their son, Ethan, rocketed through the door. Dad, I found a body. While following Ethan's directions, Robert and Mike found a completely nude black woman who had clearly been murdered. Calling the police, they arrived processing the crime scene. None realized that this discovery would help solve a number of murders. A single hair found on a handlet's arm would link her death to a serial killer. The last time Jenna Williams saw her mama, Johnny May, she was very pregnant with her son, Brian Keith. January 24, 2003, Johnny May had gotten up and announced that she was going to Baton Rouge. Baby Brian was born, but without his grandmother reappearing. A year later, the terrible news came that Johnny May was dead, and Jenna denied it until the DNA confirmed that it was Johnny May, and she had to accept that her beloved mama had been murdered as Johnny May's case went cold. And Sean called Terry over to share a photo he'd found on the internet, a dead black woman buttocks sticking up in the air. Grossed out, Terry told him it was disgusting he was a weirdo, as Sean laughed, knowing his hidden files held many photos like this, and that he could revisit and enjoy them thoroughly later. Christmas, Sean's favorite holiday, came with them celebrating with Terry's daughter, 
who was joining them. But boredom soon set in again, and by February 2004, Sean's trolling and trolling and trolling became successful once more. Donna Bennett Johnston was the daughter of Joseph and Johnny Mae Bennett. One of six children, dad was a welder, and mom occasionally worked as a cashier. Donna loved gymnastics, and as a good Catholic, went to church each Sunday. However, at 15, Donna became pregnant with son Michael. She married, but she divorced soon afterwards. And then she married again in 1984 to tall, slender Jimmy Johnson. Happy together, they had sons Justin and Tony. A car salesman, their finances and marriage had their ups and downs. Toss in a little infidelity, and Donna began to take a drink now and again. As her marriage worsened, Donna turned to pills and then to crack. Jimmy sent her to rehab many times, but it failed to stick. Protecting the kids, Jimmy divorced Donna, but the couple still loved each other, and they would have two more children together, Savannah and Woody. Quote, before crack, she was a good mom, Johnny said. She cooked, she cleaned, she believed in God. When the drugs started, she began to stay away from them, and I took care of them. She would come by, there for birthdays and Christmas, end quote. Sober, Donna lived with her mother, but then she would use again and leave, quote. This life she lived, the drugging, all day, every day, clouded the memories of gospel songs that she loved to sing. Walking up and down the street, waiting for the next man to stop and offer her money to get in his car, was not what she had meant for her life to be. She did try, and as the kids grew older, they were sometimes exposed to the life she lived more than they should have been, end quote. I am sorry I have never seen a positive outcome associated with drugs. I have not seen that happen. Story after story, addiction leading to devastation and sadly into sex work. Not worth it. Sorry. But Donna actually spent very little time in jail because unbeknownst to her family, she was a police informant, giving information about drug dealers to the Baton Rouge PD, who took it easy on her. She was glad to help and glad to stay out of jail. But by 2004, Donna was in terrible condition, her shiny brown hair now thin, dirty, and tangled. She had come by to see Jimmy, wanting cash, and he sent her away, refusing to help until she was sober. February 25, 2004, Donna needed a fix. Heading to work, she ran into friend Willie Banks, who was out late at 1.45 a.m., checking on his newborn puppies. He drove Donna to a convenience store to get some food and drink. Donna wandered off, anxious about making enough money to buy her drugs. About 3 a.m., a Chevy Cavalier pulled up with a nice, geeky white man inside, and Donna didn't hesitate. Sean Gillis knew she was drunk when she slid into his car and promptly fell asleep. Wow, this would be easy, he thought. Tonight, he couldn't bring her back to his house because Terry was home. But he needed this, so he drove to a secluded spot near a chemical factory and took out his zip tie, putting it around Donna's neck. Survival instinct kicked in abruptly, and Donna lurched, jumping out of the car, running. Catching up, Sean yanked the zip tie, and it was over quickly. Dumping her into the trunk, he drove off. 
Turning off Parkway Drive, he found a lonely, secluded spot in the woods. Dawn was coming, and he had to work fast. He took photos of Donna's corpse, grabbed his tools, and went to work, tossing her black and silver belt, jeans, and wig on the ground. He sawed through muscle tissues and bone, and seeing a tattoo on her right thigh, he sliced it off. Fascinated by her breasts, he cannibalized again, knowing at this moment this victim would become part of him forever. Loading the remains into the trunk, he took more Polaroids and then wrapped the tattoo in a paper towel and wrapped the severed arm in a blue and white dish towel. Driving to the canal near Ben-Hur Road, he dragged Donna from the car across the debris and dirt, leaving small fragments of human skin behind. Placing her on her stomach, her jacket was draped over her right arm and face, and he posed her buttocks in the air, leaving a bloody shoe print on her back. He took the severed arm and tattoo with him, later chucking the tattoo into a ditch, and then drove down past River Road, fleeing the arm down to a levee. And then he headed home to Terry, his honey bunny. Detectives Jared Ruiz and Eric Strickland had to go and tell Johnny Mae Bennett her daughter Donna was dead. Breaking into tears, Johnny Mae promised to help any way she could, filling the detectives in about her daughter's life her friends, and her whereabouts. How would she tell Donna's children? How? The detectives next spoke to Jimmy, who went into shock. Jimmy told them about her coming into the shop and asking for money, and then sending her on her way. Ruiz and Strickland would turn over every rock, speak to everyone that they could think of, but nothing was helpful. Canvassing the neighborhood, everybody knew Donna, but nobody had a clue who killed her. Four days after Donna's body was discovered, the Unsolved Homicide Task Force was formed to investigate. Donna Bennett Johnston, Johnny May Williams, and Catherine Hall, plus too many similar unsolved murders of sex workers who were mutilated and left in remote areas, were included. Detective Ruiz, plus the members of the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office, the Baton Rouge PD, Louisiana State Police, and the FBI, worked the cases. Reviewing all the files, a pattern emerged. Catherine Hall, Johnny May Williams, and Donna Bennett Johnston had very similar injuries and causes of death. They had been cut up and left. Johnny May and Donna were both dismembered. Catherine was stabbed numerous times after death, as had been two other women. Their bodies had been similarly posed in isolated areas away from North Baton Rouge, where they all worked the streets. They all had ligature marks around their necks. Faces Lab at LSU found a limb hair from a Caucasian male and sent it to the FBI crime lab in D.C. A hair had also been found in Catherine Hall's mouth, but the DNA profile sent to CODIS did not get a hit. The state police crime lab also analyzed everything they had, with a DNA profile linking Catherine and Donna's cases. Then everything was sent to the FBI lab, and the hair on Johnny May also matched those other women. There was no doubt they had another serial killer. The task force now reached out to other departments. Please, 
send files on any mutilated sex worker investigations. And this resulted in the case of Lillian Gorham Robinson, Joyce Williams, Hardy Mosley Schmidt, and Anne Bryan joining the list. They examined every clue and were very thorough after learning a painful lesson, relying too heavily on a serial killer profile during the Derek Toddley investigation. That criminal profile suggested that a white man was the killer, and the task force then failed to follow up on leads on black men since they were looking for a white guy. Only black man, Derek Todd Lee, was the killer. So grim fact, myth number two. Back then, it was believed that most serial killers are white men and that most serial killers kill within their own race. Here, we have two. Derek Todd Lee, a black man, Sean Vincent Gillis, a white man, who killed anyone within any race or any group. So we need to let go of the myths and keep updating our databases and understanding of how these people do their crimes. In the Lee case, it was investigators from the Attorney General's office working on the cold cases of Connie Warner and Randy Mebrner that came to suspect Lee and were correct, ending his reign of terror. But this time, this task force would catch this serial killer through cooperation and old-fashioned detective work. Detective Todd Morris reminds me of Clay Bryant, my favorite Georgia cold case investigator who you met a few books back. Morris was born to be a detective, too. He had 20 years of investigation under his belt when he joined the Unsolved Homicides Task Force. By March, the task force had eliminated a number of suspects when DNA did not match. Frustrated, they now went back to step one, Catherine Hall's crime scene photos. Dozens of cuts and wounds, the shoe print on the victim's back, and a tire track left at the scene. Crime scene tech Van Calhoun worked with Goodyear to see what kind of tire made that print and confirmed it was an Aquatread 13-inch tire. Next, they began narrowing down the 60 names of people who bought an Aquatread 13 tire recently, going door to door. That's the old-fashioned police work. Number 26 on the list was Sean Vincent Gillis. On April 28, 2004, Terry called out, Sean, the police are here. They want to talk to you. Greeting Sean, FBI agent Jeff Methden explained to Sean that there had been a murder and the police were swabbing anyone who had bought an Aquatred 13, as Detective Jeremy Shiro ran a Q-tip along Sean's cheek. Uh, had Sean been near Ben-Hur Road lately? Well, yes, I grew up near there. Oh, do you know a Donna Bennett Johnston or a Catherine Hall? No, Sean responded, sounding a little confused. No, I don't know either of them. Johnny Mae Williams? Oh, yes, she's a friend of mine. She cleaned my house as he started getting more comfortable answering questions. Thanking him, outside, both Methvin and Shiro knew they had to bring this guy in. Sharing this with Tony Morris and Jerry Mitchell, Sean had placed himself at the scene on Ben-Hur, and he knew Johnny May. Todd and Jerry headed over to bring Sean in. Speaking with Pleasant and Chatty Sean again, when Morris and Mitchell said they had to bring him in, his demeanor shifted and he became withdrawn. 
smoking a cigarette, he said, quote, let's go get this shit over with, end quote. They heard the resignation in his voice, and they knew they had the right guy. 2.18 p.m., Sean Vincent Gillis was Mirandized as Detective Brian White and Jerry Mitchell began developing a rapport with their suspect. Brian White is a 16-year veteran, and he checked that Sean understood his rights, and he said he did, and Sean did not ask for an attorney. Comfortable, laughing, Sean claimed he was in the field on Ben-Hur to take a pig. McDonald's was full, his bladder was cheech and chonging, as he put it, and he backed into the field, hopped out, piddled, shook, looked around, and that was that. Why hadn't he just gone home? Well, there was traffic and red lights. Well, they told him that Donna was found murdered there at that location. They asked Sean why he thought he was here, and Sean replied, well, the tracks, with the detective agreeing. Asked about knowing Johnny May, Sean explained their history. They spoke about his wife, as he called Terry. Oh, oh, there might be blood in his car. She bleeds from, from seizures from epilepsy now and again. And the detectives let Sean go, immediately setting up surveillance around his house. Questioned intently by Terry, Sean explained that his tires were the same as the ones found at the murder of that lady on Ben-Hur. That night, the couple had a nice romantic dinner together, and Sean climbed into bed with Terry, something he never did. As they slept in each other's arms, the DNA test came back, linking Sean to the DNA on the victims. The task force formed a plan with the SWAT team. Hey, this guy could be violent. April 29th at 1.20 a.m., bam, Terry jumped up and turned on the light, and Sean shrugged and smiled and said he was sorry. The police came in and handcuffed him. Terry was utterly humiliated, but permitted to get dressed. They had the wrong person. This was insane. Star Trekking Sean would never kill anyone. This was all a big mistake. She sounds much like Judith Ridgway did from my She Married the Green River Serial Killer trilogy. So Sean had some time to think overnight. And the next morning, he told the detectives, quote, I really need legal counsel, end quote, as they Mirandized him again. He was savvy enough to know that DNA evidence was damning and that he'd lost the game he had been playing for years, and he probably needed to listen to an attorney. But the detectives wanted to talk about his accomplishments, and Sean's ego overwhelmed his common sense, and he began talking away, sharing the most unbelievably ghastly story that Morrison White had ever heard in all of their years of donning the badge. Captive audience here. Sean dove into it, savoring every detail that he had rolled over and over in his memory, speaking as if he and his buddies were talking about batting averages. Quote, an investigator interrupted, You have been appointed an attorney from the public defender's office. Bert Garraway is your attorney. He called and advised that you make no statements. Sean replied, I don't care, end quote, and continued talking. He spoke about Johnny May, how they had been friends. He had gotten angry, not liking that she did crack. Marijuana was okay, but he didn't approve of crack. And he'd beaten her up, cut off her hands, and pleasured himself with them. He shared every detail with the detectives. What about Catherine Hall? Oh, he put her body at the dead end sign laughing. Quote, 
I was the chess master then. I watched TV to predict my next move, to judge whether I was winning. I never had a plan about when I would kill my next victims. It was just when the opportunity arose. End quote. Guy wanted to be winning, huh? Donna Bennett Johnston. Oh, that was an easy kill. He cut off her tattoo, stomped on her back, and raped her after she was dead. And about cannibalizing? Oh, that was no biggie. He'd just been curious. Then Sean mentioned Marilyn Nevels, a new name to White Morris who sat up straight. They had no file on her. Sean referred to her as Miss Nevels, an oddly respectful tone for a woman he'd killed and butchered in a most inhumane way. He abducted her, killed her, and showered with her dead body. Police did confirm that a Jane Doe had been located on the levee in 2000, which matched what Sean was revealing about Marilyn. He also told them about Anne Bryan's murder a decade back. He entered St. James Place and turned the first doorknob. Open, he went in and tried to rape 82-year-old Anne Bryan. Screaming, Sean tried to silence her and complained that the throat muscles were so tight it was really hard to stab her, turning it into a bloody mess. Well, that was inconvenient. Oh, yeah, yeah. Listening to Sean's depravity caused White and Mitchell to feel bile rise in their throats, but they hid it, refusing to give him the satisfaction that he was getting to them. Sean spoke with such pride, he thought he was so clever, so sophisticated. The detectives gave him neither praise nor condemnation. They just took notes for trial. Sean told them about Hardy Schmidt, who had been stalking for weeks, watching her while she jogged. He had driven his car into her, with her moaning, Oh, my back! Sean told her her back was the least of her worries now. He killed her and raped her body in a nearby park. Terry hadn't noticed the smell of decomp in the trunk. It certainly wasn't a squirrel. I know we knew this. Later, he dumped Hardy into the canal by St. James Parish. Law enforcement contacted Baton Rouge, who confirmed that the details matched the actual case. The interview took a decided turn for the worse when Sean brought up Joyce Williams. Strangled with a zip tie, he'd taken her back to his house, biting her legs prior to dismembering her. He'd had some trouble when the blade on the saw snapped rolling his eyes that this was so inconvenient, and then blood was everywhere. He cleaned it up with paper towels. Having more trouble cutting off her arm, he decided to decapitate her instead and used it for a sex act. And then came more mutilation and cannibalism. Quote, he acted like his behavior was normal, amusing. He didn't think of himself as a cannibal and did not expect others to think of him like that either. He was simply a surgeon sampling his work, end quote. Later, underneath the linoleum, bloodstains would be found in Terry and Sean's kitchen. Did he recognize the photo of Lillian Robinson, a cold case since 2000? Quote, yeah, it was the usual sick playing with her too, end quote. He had killed her, taken her home, abused her body parts, and thrown her in the bayou. And then finally, thankfully, the interview came to a close, with Todd Morris shaken to his core. Quote, People live in a bubble for the most part. They don't realize what's out there. They need to be more aware and never place themselves in a place 
where they could be a potential victim in their own neighborhoods. They need to be aware of their surroundings, wary of strangers, and do everything they can to minimize the danger from people like Sean Gillis. I'm harder on my own children now for their own safety, end quote. That is probably the most important part of this trilogy, Murder Bookies. Be aware of your surroundings. Be wary of strangers. Be proactive. Do not miss that point. On May 4, 2004, the East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office notified Lafayette PD that Sean Gillis had confessed to the four-year-old murder of Marilyn Nevels. Who? Marilyn Nevels was a conundrum to homicide detective David LeBlanc. Usually with the murder, the crime scene is preserved and then analyzed, video or photographs are taken, and the victim is identified. Family, if there are any, are notified, and a timeline is established. But with Marilyn Nevels, it was totally backward. They had a killer without knowing they had a murderer. A jovial Sean greeted Detective LeBlanc, who had come to interview him. Sean had been going to visit his goddaughter when he saw Marilyn on Evangeline Thruway. Engaging her for oral sex, she'd fought when he slipped the zip tie around her neck, forcing Sean to chase and then beat her to death. He bragged he'd taken his $10 back for the blowjob. He filled LeBlanc in on the details, showering, running out of time, and not dismembering her because of Terry's schedule. LeBlanc was mute with disbelief. This guy had ice flowing through his veins. Later, LeBlanc would say Sean, quote, was reliving it all in a psychopathic way through his confession. There was no remorse, no empathy for his victims. He was the classic psychopath bragging about his crimes, end quote. And Sean's confession matched what LeBlanc could find out about Marilyn's life. She had been staying with a man who used a wheelchair who had then moved to Shreveport shortly before her death. On October 20th, 2000, Marilyn was at the home of a man, Alex Perry Jr., and Alex Perry had called 911 about a drunken Marilyn causing a disturbance. She left around 4 a.m. and ran into Sean Gillis. Back at their home, Terry was just lost. She called her daughter, Christine, waking her up in the middle of the night, with the news that Sean had been arrested for murder. Christine later said, quote, Sean wouldn't kill anyone. He was funny and loving. Sean had never even raised his voice to her. He was goofy. He was a computer nerd. He wasn't a killer. And I was shocked. Everything went blank. I didn't know what to think. I couldn't process it. How could anyone understand something so big? When I finally realized it was true, I felt so betrayed, end quote. Christine remembered the last time she'd seen Sean. She hadn't wanted to come home, getting a bad feeling, but she shrugged it off. Chatting with Sean that night, he mentioned that a woman had been killed just up the road and had Christine heard. She hadn't. But wait, why was he snickering when he asked? Terry just didn't understand. Her peaceful, normal life was decimated by the man she trusted. From jail, he bluntly told her, quote, everything you've heard is true, end quote. He didn't know why, and he apologized for what this would cost her. As details came out about the killing and mutilations, the media shifted his attention to her. After Terry said she didn't know what she was going to do now, a reporter snapped, quote, 
this isn't about you. It's about the victims, end quote. And the coverage turned against her. Had she known? Had she helped? A neighbor came to their house and sprinkled holy water on their lawn. And Terry just wanted to cry and hide. She dug up an old address. Had anyone seen Lewis? Was he out of prison? Lewis Michael Garr, who she'd met back in the 1980s, was the love of Terry's life. Dating, Lewis took her to places she'd never been, like the USS Kid and the old state capitol, which resembled a castle with Terry. But Lewis had a hidden past. As a teenager, he had become involved with the Marcello family, so think New Orleans Mafia. At age 18, way in over his head, Lewis went to deliver a message to pay back the money when the man violently attacked Lewis. Desperately struggling, Lewis grabbed a bumper jack and struck the man and ran away, not realizing that he had killed Risley Treach Jr. Killing someone had never been his intent, and Lewis waited for the police, but they never showed up. Lewis had never told Terry about Risley Treach Jr. To Terry, Lewis was kind, intelligent, and good to her. Pregnant, Terry gave birth to their daughter, Christine, June 9, 1984. She was content and totally happy with their daughter and her wonderful man. But family life scared Lewis to death, and the couple broke up with him disappearing. So to recap now, remember back, Terry killed Norby the biker, David D. Lewis has killed this Risley Trish Jr., and then Terry gets involved with serial killer Sean. Somebody has terrible taste in partners. I just, I can't even. All of them. All of them killers. Well, Terry gave up her toddler for adoption with her minister and his wife raising Christine. And not long after, Lewis was pulled over for a broken tailpipe, and he blurted out, quote, Y'all are looking for me. I'm the one who killed that guy eight years ago, end quote. Convicted of first-degree murder, Lewis was sentenced to life in prison. Now, while in prison, Lewis learned about the law and the common errors made by the courts, and, quote, he began to study those books. He learned that the first-degree murder statute in Louisiana required premeditation and an underlying felony, such as theft or kidnapping. He realized that neither of those requirements was present in his case. He appealed, end quote. Eventually, Lewis won, pleading guilty to manslaughter in return for a 15-year sentence. Applying himself, Lewis got his paralegal certification and helped other prisoners with their appeals. He was out of prison by the time he was 40. Trying to adjust to life outside, he was thrilled when his lost love, Terry, called him. Lewis admitted he'd never stopped loving Terry, and he moved in with her as police continued digging up the backyard looking for evidence. Well, that was quite quick. Simultaneously, Sean's love letters arrived. Quote, My dearest Terry, I tried to reach you today but got a busy signal. I long for these days to talk with you, and I hope you'll come see me Wednesday. I'll put your name down as always. I miss you sore. I love you so much, my honey bunny. Sean. End quote. April 29th, 2004. The world learned the task force arrested another serial killer in Baton Rouge. The community hadn't fully recovered from the trauma Derek Todd Lee had inflicted on them in the preceding years. By 2004, 
a fragile sense of security had begun creeping back, only to be shattered once again. Was their city spawning serial killers? What was wrong with them? And this guy, Sean, he lived in a nice neighborhood. He attended Catholic schools with their children. He'd waited on many neighbors at the Circle K. He looked goofy, not scary. Where the public may have heard the names of Anne Bryan or Hardy Mosley Schmidt, the other women were mysteries given their high-risk lifestyles. Detective Todd Morris spoke with Ron Lejeune of the West Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office and Chief Stephen Inglio of the Iverville Parish Sheriff's Office about Joyce Williams, murdered in one town and dumped in the other. They listened to Sean's confession. Again, the story matched the crime scene details. With Lejeune and Inglio joining, Sean directed the task force to various locations to see if they could find more evidence, like Donna's severed arm in the blue and white towel, or the tattoo, or maybe even the knife, but none were located. They did find Johnny Mae Williams' clothing tossed behind a parking lot. By the time they were done, they had literally driven all over Baton Rouge, reliving Sean's murders. Search warrants for Sean's residence were prepared and processed. By late afternoon, knives, a black and white belt, machete, seven saws, a hacksaw, photos of Johnny Mae Williams, zip ties, and books on serial killers like The Hillside Strangler, Son of Sam, and Silence of the Lambs were hauled away. Articles on Derek Todd Lee, memory sticks, digital cameras, VHS cassettes, adult videos, rolls of film, and the like were seized including his Chevy Cavalier and an old van. Evidence linked to Donna Bennett Johnston's murder were found in that van, where Sean had concealed a trophy, hiding it for years. Terry told Detective Morris that Sean had told her he'd killed one with Terry's butcher knife from the kitchen. Morris came and picked it up. Searching Sean's online accounts, they discovered a Yahoo profile, LocoWeed70808, and his age listed at 666. This reminds me of alleged Long Island serial killer, Rex Hewerman, who had bogus email addresses such as springfieldmad9 at aol.com, used to get his burner phones, etc. Under Sean's favorite quotes, he listed, quote, crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of their women, end quote, from the film Conan the Barbarian. His musical choices? Quite varied. Abba, Barry White, Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera. And he loved Christmas music. He spent hours searching for sexy celebrity photos with files of porn labeled Asian, Negro, Hispanic, Caucasian, Old Fucks, and it went on and on. Then came the files labeled Kinky, Macabre, Beheadings and Hangings, Russian Necro, Best Snuff, Bondage. Again, it sounds very much like Rex Hewerman and his twisted internet searches. On June 10, 2004, Sean Gillis was indicted for the first-degree murder of Donna Bennett Johnston. Assistant DA for the Eastern Baton Rouge Parish, Prem Burns, filed notification to seek the death penalty. So Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel have a chapter in Dismembered called Prison Letters, and it is a run down the rabbit hole. I'm going to spare you most of it, but here is a sample. 
from Sean to Terry. Hi, honey bunny. I'm still on the Klingon asteroid Rule Pente. At least it feels that cold here. As you can see, the body's in prison, but the soul is flying high again. Many hugs and kisses. Love you, Sean. Admiral Starfleet, retired for now, end quote. Well, that is kind of disgustingly upbeat. Terry's replies were very routine, accounts of daily life, and her sense of isolation, not knowing what was going on with Sean's case. She writes, quote, Take care of yourself and write often. The same sentiments come from me, all my heart, end quote. In sum, Sean gets snippy, aggravated, but he informs Terry that he has found Christ. A bit like serial killer Velma Barfield, I'm thinking. Oh, and uh, Sean thinks that Terry should reconsider Jesus because he wants to see her in the kingdom that will come. Oh, delusional as ever, Sean thinks he's fine, and Terry is the one who needs to worry about salvation. Well, Sean also writes to Lewis, thanking him for all that he does. All of this very cordial. Now, there's lots of letters, all relevant and insightful, and I encourage you to read the book as always. Now our authors introduce us to the prosecution. The flamboyant, undefeated Tony Clayton, the assistant district attorney and chief felony prosecutor for the parishes of Iberville and West Baton Rouge, who prefers hard cases. A black man, Tony views his job this way, quote, Babies don't cry black tears or white tears. They cry tears from pain. Crime causes pain. And my job is to stop the pain to bring justice to the victim's families, end quote. I cannot appreciate this perspective more. Tony also collaborated with our authors on a previous book. I think I've mentioned it. I've been watching you about serial killer Derek Todd Lee that was later published as Bloodbath. So when Tony watched Sean Gillis's confession, the rage welled up in him. Quote, did you see that confession? It's freaking unbelievable. This guy is so sick. End quote. To seek the death penalty in Louisiana, premeditation needs to accompany a felony charge, like kidnapping and felony robbery. However, in this case, Joyce Williams had willingly gotten into Sean's car, so there is no basis for the death penalty only second-degree murder with a life sentence on conviction. Defense attorney Kerry Cuccia had other ideas about that. Adopting the delay tactic, motion after motion was filed, each having to be processed, which caused delays. A hearing was even held on whether lights would or wouldn't be on during the trial. Right, this just pisses me off. In our Constitution, in our Bill of Rights, it is our right to a speedy trial, not a long, drawn-out, delay-after-delay process. Defend the suspect. Present your evidence. But this delay tactic actually is a violation of Sean's civil rights. I would sue the defense for violating their own client's rights. Yep, I know. I am no lawyer, and I am probably way wrong on this legally. but. That's still what I think should happen because this is just nonsense. Anyway, rant over. So three years later in 2007, Tony was ready to give his opening argument as Ken Cuccio was fighting the admissibility of Sean's confession. His position, 
it should be thrown out because Sean asked for an attorney three times. Judge Robin Free reviewed all 40 hours of it and ruled that while it was a close call, he'd permit the confession to be used as evidence. But he sealed it to prevent the media from releasing any details. So remember, there are going to be multiple trials going on in different jurisdictions. You don't want that to get out there. Cuccia appealed to the Louisiana Court of Appeals First Circuit, and they denied even looking at it, leaving Cuccia furious. He filed another motion, fighting both jurisdictions. Frustrated, Judge Robin Free ordered Cuccia to knock it off, and a trial date was set. Not to be defeated, Cuccia asked that Tony Clayton be recused from the trial. He just didn't want to go up against a prosecutor who had never lost a murder trial. Never before in West Baton Rouge Parish had a prosecutor been called to testify as a witness in his own trial. Cuccia asked if Tony Clayton had co-authored the book, I've Been Watching You. Tony said yes. Had he written a chapter in the book about Sean Gillis? Tony replied, well, technically no. Susan Mustafa wrote that chapter as laughter erupted through the court. Well, where did she get her information? Clayton said Cuccia should ask her. Had he given her the information? His response was, quote, I didn't know she'd written about Sean Gellis until she showed me the rough draft, end quote. Cuccia pressed. In the book, it says that Sean Gillis is guilty of the murder of eight women. How can you try this man when you've already determined that he's guilty? Tony Clayton smiled, quote, of course I think he's guilty. I'm a prosecutor. I'm trying him because I think he's guilty. Let me tell you something, Mr. Cuccia. Your client? Ice water runs through his veins. Goldfish stops swimming when he walks in a room. If you think he's innocent, you need to check yourself. End quote. More laughter erupted. Now, Susan Mustafa, yes, our author, was called to testify, and she was uneasy walking past Sean Gellis. She'd never testified in a criminal trial, and as a journalist, she'd never reveal her sources. She knew she might have to go to jail if ordered to do so. Cuccia read a paragraph about Joyce Williams' murder with the zip ties, Sean sawing off her leg at the hip, and having sex with the severed end of it. Cucci demanded to know where she got this information, and Susan refused to answer the question, as journalistic shield laws permitted. Cucci asked Judge Free to direct Susan to answer, and Free responded, show me the relevance. Cucci insisted it was relevant because Tony Clayton should be recused due to his participation in the book. But Judge Free wasn't having it, just not good enough, as Susan sighed with relief and Tony Clayton was not recused from the case. August 2007, Sean Gillis pled guilty to the murder of Joyce Williams. He was sentenced to life after three years of delays. Tony Clayton said, quote, Cuccia used so many deletory tactics to delay the trial. He is the first lawyer I've gone up against in my years of prosecuting who pled his client out to second-degree murder. He was concerned about the facts of the confession, and it seems hypocritical to me that he claimed his client's innocence for years and then had him raise his right hand and say he was guilty. Why waste the state's money like that? Why not just have him plead guilty right away? 
It didn't make sense. And what about Joyce's family? End quote. I agree with Tony 100%. Judge Robin Pree's perspective. He had grown up in a poor blue-collar neighborhood, and he worked hard to graduate from Southern University Law School. Becoming a judge, he said, quote, I wanted to change things. I have to try to fix things when I think they're wrong. The problem is that it's bigger than I thought. I try to always be firm but fair for the people, by the people. I base everything on criminal activity. I judge on that, not the person at the defense's table's soul. He recalled that Gillis wanted to plead guilty and to take his medicine early on. He knew the gig was up, end quote. But Kerry Cuccia would not accept this. He appealed Sean's plea agreement. The plea agreement they had to decide to enter into with the Louisiana Supreme Court, who refused to review it. Cuccia was furious again. I do wonder if he knows that anger and stress can damage the body. And he wrote a scathing article in the local paper, The Advocate. And this confirmed for Judge Free that he had made the right call on the confession. And we will continue this story in two weeks with episode 76, Conscience of the King, where the trials of Sean Vincent Gillis take off with some serious surprises that left me breathless. Always trust your guts, murder bookies. And my next book, thank you Patreon members for helping, is Click, Click, Click by my friends from the Sugar Coated Murder Podcast, Ann Varner and Karen Devaney, on a very personal murder case from their hometown. These ladies are an inspiration to me, writing this book as part of their Say My Name series, focusing on remembering victims. Read along with me, or let me read for you. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. Please take a few minutes to leave an awesome review and then share your thoughts with me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or join Patreon for $4 a month. So much is happening in true crime constantly. Oh my gosh, Natalie Holloway, Long Island serial killer, Delphi, Kohlberger trial, spree shootings. Okay, but anyway. New fall and winter designs are out on Spreadshop, so get your merch. Hey, the holidays are coming fast. The links are at my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with my sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and wine pairing, too. Lock your doors and windows, and don't park next to vans. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbach.